But before us this morning, we will continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 21, and we're covering uh, basically the second part, or the second half of this chapter. This is where uh, Jesus' authority is, is challenged by the religious leaders of the time. Um, we have the uh, couple parables in there. By the way, these are two of three parables that Jesus presents to the religious leaders to come to the understanding and realization of where they are in these parables so that they would come to a, a, a place, a position in their hearts and minds of repentance before the Lord. And really, that's the reason why he's bringing them to them. And also, it serves us as a lesson today and uh, for things to, to learn as far as the disciples were concerned in that day and in that moment uh, when Jesus um, was in their midst as well. So let's start off by reading verses 23 through 27. This is when Jesus was challenged. Again, this is Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer... Then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning asking, Lord, that you would exalt yourself through this teaching of your word. That you would glorify yourself, Lord, by giving us understanding, helping us to uh, reach that place of responding to your word, uh, Lord, by confessing and coming alongside you and receiving it for what it is in our lives today, that we may bring you glory. Lord, reveal today anything that uh, we see that we we need to give to you, Lord, that we need to turn away from. Lord, and and help strengthen those areas in our lives that need strengthening and encouraging. And so, Lord, may we see things for what they truly are and not for what we sometimes wish they would be or what we think sometimes they are and are not. And so, Lord, um, help us to, again, see things for what they are, and, uh, and Lord, uh, respond in a way that brings you glory. And so we commit this day into your hands, Lord, this morning, this message, Father, may it all be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So think, see things for what they are is what we have before us. We begin this morning by once again learning about how Jesus' authority has been challenged once more by the religious leaders of the time. Uh, This exchange of the religious leaders challenging Jesus' authority, and then Jesus giving them these parables in exchange, which I want to explain what a parable is. Not, Not everyone really fully understands what one is. A parable is a simple story, and that's the key word, simple, Uh, Not simplistic, but simple, in that it can be understood. It's a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. It's an example. It's a model. It's an illustration 
uh, an illustrative story is what we have before us. So Jesus, in exchange, uh, them really challenging his authority, what he comes back with is what we'll see in the following verses, a couple parables, and then a third one in the following chapter. But these parables are about wicked, unprepared, and even murderous servants. This exchange goes on for, again, two chapters until Jesus proclaims the seven woes against the religious leaders in chapter 23. Warning of judgment that is coming. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear what they are guilty of. I mean, there has to be no question whatsoever by the end of these three parables exactly who he's talking about and and what he's accusing them of. Even then, and even now, as we look at this section of Scripture, it's a shot across the bow, is what it is. This was to serve as a warning of what was to come if they did not change course. I wonder how often God shoots a, has a shot taken over our bow. You know, not hitting us, but really warning us of what could come. You know, helping us to understand, hey, this is not the direction that we should be going in. We should change our direction. We should correct our direction. God desires repentance. And and even in this exchange, Jesus is warning them so that they would see their sins for what they are, according to the parables, and agree with God that it was all wrong, all for the sake of being set right with the Lord. Because we know that God desires that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance, right? A turning from and a turning to. A turning from our sin and a turning to the Lord. And even if they did not see their actions for what they are, these parables serve as illustrations for us today, as examples. The very Word of God, as we hear and understand them now, they can serve to reflect to us what we may be guilty of, and therefore give us an opportunity to confess our shortcomings, our sin, and ask the Lord for forgiveness and the wisdom for us, uh, the wisdom, God's discernment, to have the right mindset, the right heart set toward Him and toward the things of God. And so that's what, that's what I pray for us this morning. So let's take a look at the first section here, uh, Jesus being challenged. And um, really, the, I, I title this section is, Go Ahead, Judge, But Judge Rightly. Now, Matthew 7, 1 uh, begins by saying, Judge not that you be not judged. It's a verse that is often taken out of context by many people. Perhaps you heard it even this week. Judge not that you be not judged. But it's mostly those that want to sin openly and without any kind of reproach. But this verse in context is saying that we ought not judge or discern with hypocrisy. First, we are to see and acknowledge our own sin and then deal with others' sin. Deal with our sin and then judge, discern, deal with someone else's. We wouldn't be much of a brother or a sister in Christ if we just allowed someone else next to us 
uh, to sin openly and without any kind of reproach or rebuke. It would be ungodly. It would be unbiblical. It would be unloving. I've said it often that if we knew that someone was traveling down a path that would lead to a cliff, it would be very unloving, it would be unbiblical to warn them of what was before them. We need to, if you're jotting down some notes, write down Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. That'll give you that verse, Matthew 7, 1, in context. And that's what I would hope you come to learn and understand and apply in your own lives. Now, I mention this because God never told us not to judge. But rather to be careful to judge correctly and for the right reasons. And we are to especially and first judge our own lives and our own sins, our own shortcomings, to make sure we are in the right place with God. These chief priests and elders came to Jesus while he was teaching. So in the middle of his teaching, they came to him and they challenged his authority. Who gives you the authority to do the things that you've been doing, Jesus? Who sent you? They wanted to know this very thing. Who gave Jesus the authority to do these things and say these things, teach these things, all of the, all of the above? Performing miracles, teaching in his own authority. Remember that he, he taught with authority, not the authority of someone else, but isn't in his own authority. He clarified the law. He entered Jerusalem with throngs of people praising him and treating him like a king, for he is a king. He is the king. And then Jesus enters the temple like he's the boss, right? Disrupting what they were doing. Rebuking the merchants and those who were patronizing them. All of them. And so here is Jesus re-entering the temple the next day. Imagine that. The religious leaders you know, must have been thinking, he has the gall to come back to the temple after the disruption that he made yesterday. He's back. The previous day he overturned tables, rebuking what they were doing and calling them even thieves. You've turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves. So these quote-unquote religious leaders confront Jesus and ask him for his credentials. By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? You see, they were supposed to be confident in judging these types of matters. According to the word... And so Jesus asked them a question to test their, quote-unquote, judging ability. If they answered correctly, then Jesus would tell them by what authority he does the things he does. And it's implied that if they do not, then he would not. I love this. Jesus had patience and he had compassion for those who were truly in need, who were sincere. But for those who were simply testing and challenging his authority, you could say that he still had a compassion, and he still had this amazing patience, right? Perfect patience. But he was very direct with them. He asked them, answer me this, who sent John the Baptist? Where did John receive his instructions and authority to do what he was doing? God or man? Did heaven send him? Or did some man somewhere send him to do and say 
the things that he was doing and saying? It's a very profound question because John testified, if you remember, who Jesus was. When he saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He identified Jesus for who he was. And so this was a very profound question. He was asking them, Who do you say John was sent by? God or man? If they judged John to be a prophet of God and was the one that was foretold of by the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, verse 3, then that would lead them to Jesus being the Messiah. The one that John proclaimed was here to take away the sin of the world was standing right before them. And they were challenging his authority. Remember, he's asking these religious leaders to judge rightly. But please judge. Please make a decision. Make some kind of conclusion here. But I'm asking you to do it with full knowledge, confessing, believing, and knowing of who stands before you. Their answer, instead, we do not know. Now, we have the privilege of knowing their little conversation that they had, right? So after their conversation with each other, kind of thinking about all these, all these things, this is what they came up with. We do not know. They, they, number one, they consulted with each other. Number two, they considered the reaction of the crowd. Number three, they conceded to what they considered to be a clever response. I'm sorry, but this sounds like a politician. Right? <laughs> Consider this. Number one, they did not consult the law and the prophets or the writings. Remember, they, they were to be judges of the people according to the law, the prophets, and the writings, which we know as the Old Testament. They did none of that. They didn't go back to Scripture. They didn't go through everything that they knew in order to make a right judgment to the question that was being presented to them. Didn't do that. Number two, they were not sincere in giving an honest answer. We can all agree with that, right? But only in preserving the favor of the people and their position of authority above the people and not losing the multitudes for their own personal gain. Number three, they were more interested in what the people thought and said than what God said and thought. More interested in what other, the people, the multitudes, the, the, the throngs of people around them, what, what they thought, than what God thought. And so Jesus told them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It's a lesson for us too. Sometimes we can test out the genuineness of whoever comes to us and is asking us certain questions. Normally we can discern, you know, if they have a sincere motive or, or if they do not. Sometimes they... they People, unfortunately, they want to come and they just simply want to mock. They want to mock our God. They want to mock our Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and His Word, and the church, and all of that. And so, you know, for them, simply, hey, answer me these few questions, or this one question. And if you're found out to simply want to 
turn this into a mockery, then perhaps we, we shouldn't go on any further. When you're genuine about your seeking, then we can sit down and we can talk about these things like adults, right? Like adults. And we can talk through. And I can help you through those questions. So God, Jesus, the Son of God, simply answered him with this. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus discerned that it was a trap and refused to answer directly and at the same time gave them an opportunity to consider John the Baptist. Consider him. Maybe you're questioning my authority, but, but what about John the Baptist? His authority and what he had testified of. If you are questioning Jesus' authority as the Son of God and His ability to be the sacrifice of the sin of the world and can be saved by grace through faith in Him, then please answer what Scripture has to say about Him. Not just what you've come up to believe in your own mind, basically put together by all the opinion, opinions of the world, but truly... Come to know what the prophets have to say about who Jesus is. Where did the whole of Scripture come from? God or man? Answer that question. And then we can talk a little bit more. Sometimes we question the authority of God's Word and we kind of just dismantle it. The whole of Scripture, what does the whole of Scripture have to say? Who Jesus is. Answer that. Answer that first. Who will you consult? Someone who has no idea. Or would you consult the scriptures themselves? And is your intent to know the truth? Are you more concerned with the reaction of the world and adjust your response accordingly? Then then that person is no better than these religious leaders that we're learning about. You're more worried about what the world has to say than what God has to say. You, you want to tailor your response to these questions by how the world will respond to you. And not necessarily with just submitting and surrendering your heart to the Lord and, and really seeking to understand who He is and who He desires to be in your life. Will you see Scripture for what it is, the Word of God, and agree with it, and who Jesus truly is? Does He have authority in your life? All those things come in question. That's the same thing that Jesus was asking them as they pose this question to Him. And then He gives them these parables. Which one are you? Uh, this is the parable of the two sons. In verse 28, as we continue, what, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he said, I go, sir, but did not go. Which one of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So, he engages these religious leaders and he gives them this parable. 
Remember, it's, it's an illustration. It's an example. It's a simple story to make a point. And Jesus definitely makes a point here. And He's very clear about it. He gives them this parable to help them understand the situation that they're in. The setting gives us a father, two sons, a vineyard, and their response to the father's instructions to work in his vineyard on that day. This is the first parable in a series of three in which God uh, represents his indictment, which we see here right now. The next parable is his sentence. And then finally in the third parable, which we'll see in Matthew chapter 22, the execution of the present Jewish leadership. By the way, there are some commentators that insist to look at this and say this is where God made it clear about replacement theology. You guys, maybe some of you are familiar with replacement theology? No? Okay, I'll explain to you. That is a belief that God replaced the Jews with the Gentiles in God's plan of salvation. Where did salvation come from? From the Jews. Right? This is not what we read here, but rather a rejection of the current leadership which had rejected Jesus. The contrast that we see here is not between Jews and Gentiles, but between those who reject and those who accept Jesus. As we see here, the two sons, the two kinds of tenants, and the two groups of wedding guests in the three parables, they represent any person of any ethnic background who either follow Jesus in discipleship or completely reject Him. That's what we have here. It's not that the Jews were replaced with the church or the Gentiles. That's, that's never in question in Scripture. So with this understanding, Jesus asked the religious leaders, which one of these two sons did the will of the Father? So that was a simple question, right? Which one of these two did the will of the Father? It seems to be a question that leads to a very obvious conclusion, and they answered correctly. The first. Initially, the son rejected his father's instructions, but then it seems he was convicted and changed his mind. He, in other words, he repented. This is repentance. He changed his mind and went and was obedient to his father. The other one said, he, he, he said the right thing. I will. But he didn't do it. Right? He said the right thing, but neglected to do the right thing in obedience to his father. Again, they answered correctly and said, the first. The first did the will of the Father. So then Jesus, at that point, he, he didn't give him an attaboy. Good job, you answered that correctly. Um, no prize, <laughs> nothing. Instead, he used this illustration to point out to them what they were doing. This was their indictment. He rebuked them. He openly rebuked them, saying that there are those whom had previously rejected Jesus by the way they were living. You may be in the same boat. You may have rejected Jesus Christ by by the way that you had previously lived your life. 
But at some point, just as they came to the conviction of who he is and what he offers, and came to a place of complete surrender, discipleship, and following Jesus Christ. While they had been saying all this time that they would follow the Lord, but were not. So it was a strong, open, clear rebuke of these religious leaders. In fact, Jesus makes it clear that John the Baptist's prophetic ministry came from heaven, as Jesus said, For John came to you in the way of righteousness. Let me answer this for you. I know I had asked you the question earlier, but let me tell you where he came from. John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Oh, what an indictment, isn't it? It's a strong indictment. It was clear that Jesus was accusing them of being the second son, not the first, the second son, that did not do what the father had told him to do. They were also not like the first son that changed his mind and came to obey, is what he told them in that conclusive statement there. They didn't change, you didn't change your minds. They did, but you have not. You've not come to believe and do that which you profess to believe and teach others, even. And they were guilty. In, in what ways are you guilty of the same? Saying one thing. Saying you believe, you follow, you abide by, and yet in some way, shape, or form, you, you reject the Lord. You don't do. You say, but you don't do. I'm a Christian. Really, what, what a Christian means is you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ... You deny yourself, you pick up your cross, and you follow Jesus. It means you abide in Him, you obey Him. uh, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Right. So that goes hand in hand. Faith without works is dead. If we don't have any action behind our words, then they're meaningless. There's nothing there. There's no substance whatsoever. You may profess you're a Christian, but your lives reflect something completely different. Maybe not entirely. Maybe there are certain areas to where you're still like, nope, like I've done before, that's gone, right? I didn't rip it again. But sometimes we do. We rip out pages and we say, I don't, I don't like that. So, no, the whole thing is the Word of God from cover to cover. In what ways are we guilty of the same thing? Saying you will follow Jesus as a disciple, but don't. And this parable is summarized by a commentator. I I read this. It says, performance takes priority over promise. In other words, action is what backs up words. Words are empty without action. And ultimately, it's faith with works that prove our faith, that demonstrates a genuineness of belief and trust in Jesus Christ. What do we live out day in and day out? We will either prove our faith in Jesus Christ or disprove the very words of our mouth. But Jesus goes on. Let's not leave it there for there's more coming, right? He brings us a second of three parables. What did you do with my son? Verse 33. 
Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? (laughs) Remember, keep in mind, these were the religious leaders. So when Jesus tells them this, it's more of asking the question, Have you not read? Do you not understand what you've read? Perhaps I can give you clear understanding. Have you, have you not read? It's like when, when someone would ask you, you know, leading you, right? Perhaps you say something that's kind of off, you know, it's like, that's not in line with scripture. Have, have you not read? It's like, oh, maybe I have read it. <laughs> and, and I just misspoke there, right? So this is what Jesus is telling them. Have you not read in the scriptures? He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this par- his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So it's, it's amazing how the light starts coming on, right? They perceived that he was speaking about them. Yes, sir. <laughs> Even in the previous parable, I think he makes it abundantly clear that he was speaking to them, about them, referring to them. Now, Jesus extends his rebuke of those within Israel who are rejecting him. Not just the religious leaders, but but he's also talking about the Israelites as a whole. And like the previous parable, Jesus gives them a story of workers who fail to carry through with their commitments and even completely miss the points that they are stewards of the word of God. Remember the law, the prophets, and the writings. They completely miss the point that they are stewards of the word of God, that they've been entrusted with to keep and are given the illustration of what they've done with the prophets that have been sent. The last one being John the Baptist just before Jesus, uh, who, by the way, will be imprisoned and beheaded. And ultimately what they will do with Jesus, the Son of God, and with his apostles and with the other disciples. This parable speaks directly to the Son, the Messiah, and is more than individuals who turn to God, but is an allusion to the fellowship of disciples of Jesus Christ. In other words, a fellowship, the church, the bride of Christ. 
So we have a master with tenants. The master had planted the vineyard, established a wall, and even set a watchtower within it for its separation. A wall? Separation? A wine press? That speaks of production? And then this watchtower to speak of vigilance and care. And, and this is all speaking of Israel. God has had lavished and has lavished his vineyard, Israel. The farmers or the tenants, those to whom God has entrusted his nation, that's who they are. The master's departure, by the way, this is common practice for first century Palestine. This is common practice. So for them, in their culture, they knew this is the way things were. The master would establish everything, would get everything together, make sure that the wall is built. The, the, the vine press is set and, and working the way it should be working. A watchtower is set to make sure everything is watched over and taken care of. But then the master leaves, and he leaves certain people there to work the land and to produce. So this was common for them. They understood this very well. And then the season for fruit. This, is, this speaks of what we would know as harvest time. Hey, the crop has produced. It's, a, it's harvest time. It's time to bring it all in. Of course, the master, knowing this, wanted his due. He knew this was the time. This was harvest time, his share of the crops. And therefore, he sent his servants to get his fruit. His fruit. It was his fruit. His land, his vineyards. The people were simply working. They were being stewards of that land. And it was his fruit. What Jesus was communicating to the religious leaders is what they were doing with all whom he sent to them. Jesus was portraying their diabolical actions that they may see them and repent. See them for what they are. Please understand this is a parable I'm explaining to you right now. And again, we know God's heart. He desires that none should perish, even these guys that were arrogant, full of themselves, and were off in their teachings. They were hypocritical. They said one thing and did another. Even them. I know people say, well, I don't go into church because it's full of hypocrites. Well, come join us. Come join us. There is no one here that's perfect. Not one person. Not one. Every one of us have missed the mark and we continue to do so. But we're in the process of sanctification. Always praying that the Lord's work that He's continued to do in our lives is reflected by growth, maturity, and hopefully a place to where we're, we're, we're reflecting God's glory just a little bit more, a little bit more. That we're quick to repent of our sins, come to that place to where we know that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Never should we sit there in condemnation of one another. That's not the judgment that He was talking about. We, we should judge one another in the sense to where we're seeking, our intent is to bring that brother or that sister in line with God in a loving way. Not to tear down. But even these religious leaders, the ones that Jesus was rebuking, he desires that they would repent. And he wanted them to see their actions for what they were. He wanted them to repent, even giving a stern warning of what their rejection would be met with. Jesus did not embellish as we do 
see the beheading of John the Baptist, the stoning of Stephen, and the further murders of the other apostles as martyrs and disciples, and the, and the ultimate crucifixion of the Son of God. So he didn't embellish upon something here. It was a proper, fitting, and perfect parable of what exactly was going on. It was all there right before them. Jesus speaks of a judgment, judgment that is coming to those who have rejected those he sent and rejected ultimately his son. Even now we see those who confess with their lips that they are followers of Jesus Christ but reject to give God his due fruits in their seasons. They are making every attempt at keeping the fruits for themselves instead of giving them to the Lord as they are his fruits, his glory. Because it all belongs to him. The bottom line, God will reject those who, although they are tenants, stewards of his vineyard, are rejecting to render to him the fruit that is produced in his vineyard and is only entrusted to the tenants or those tending to the vineyard. There are many people who are, God will say, the Lord will say in that day, depart from me, I never knew you. And they'll say, they'll come, Lord, Lord. Haven't I? Haven't I? Haven't I? Haven't I? They may be these very people. They did all these things, but it was for the wrong motives. They had it all wrong. They were even steering people the wrong way. We're going to come to a chapter here to where if this isn't clear enough, if this warning isn't filled with enough um, judgment to come, it's in verse 23 that Jesus goes through seven woes, seven woes to these religious leaders. He says, be careful, this is the direction that you're going in. Don't don't get there. That which does not magnify the Lord will never truly bless men. Sometimes we seek to exalt ourselves, We seek to basically steal God's glory. And that's one thing that I've always been taught. One of the things that you put out, do not steal God's glory. Do not steal his glory. It's all to him. You know, we were praying earlier, again, as I told you, we were praying. And I was thinking about how in our own lives, regardless of what we're going through, we can glorify the Lord. Regardless of what we're going through. Lord, what the world looks as beautiful and and deems as beautiful sometimes is the ugliest thing to you. Pride, being filled with ourselves, really being, we don't need any more love for ourselves. We really don't. What we need to do is, is really consider God above us and others esteem them more than us. Really, that's what's beautiful to the Lord. And in our own circumstances, circumstances, and in the things that we're going through, really we can bring glory to the Lord, no matter what it looks like, no matter what we're, we have going on in our own lives. These people, those who are saying yes with their lips, but no with their actions, are in fact rejecting Jesus and their own words. And actions will be their judge, testifying against them, crushed by the weight of their own testimony of life. That which does not magnify the Lord, again, I will say, will never truly bless men. 
So Jesus had clearly laid before them their indictment and their sentence is what we have here. And um, he wasn't done. He was going to continue. One more parable, which we'll cover next Sunday in chapter 22. And this would explain their execution again. These, these are parables. And so he's teaching them. He's bringing them before them. Please respond to this. These religious leaders came to understand that Jesus was referring to them in these parables. And they wanted to arrest him, is what we see there at the end of this chapter. They were indignant for bringing up such accusations against them. They were indignant against and toward Jesus. They were so angry with him. They wanted to arrest him. This is how those who are religiously prideful today respond when they are confronted, making every attempt at squashing or silencing the person who's rebuking them instead of seeing things for what they truly are. But it is to their own spiritual demise. It's interesting that even in the end here, they were more afraid of the people because they considered him to be a prophet. But it was very clear by their actions that they did not. They, they did not believe that Jesus was a prophet. It's important in closing for us right now to see things for what they are. Not for what we may wishfully think they are or, what, or really what they could be. Or even should be. But there are moments when we are called on the carpet to answer a few questions and have things revealed to us really for our own good. Because what God desires for you and I in this very moment is to consider those things. See things for what they are. Consider those things. And God in His loving way is warning us as well. There's, there's a, I'm a loving God, but I'm a just God too. <laughs> and I love you. And I discipline those whom I love. And so God desires that we would be obedient. Doesn't, doesn't prefer sacrifice or coming to him in confession over obedience. Obedience over all of that. He wants us to simply obey. That we would be blessed and he would be glorified. That's what he desires. And that's what he desired for these religious leaders. He does not wish that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance for their sake and for the glory of God. How are ways that you could be challenging the authority of Jesus in your own life? In in what ways can you be doing that? Are you saying you will be obedient to the Lord, but are not in, in any area of your life? Have you neglected to give God the glory for the fruit produced in your life too? Come to that place to where, hey, anything that is good... Anything that is beneficial to me, oh, glory to God. This is, this is your hand. This is your work. This is what you're doing. Even giving me the ability to do, to do whatever it is that, that I'm doing, that I would come to a place of ever coming close to receiving glory for myself. It's just, it's, it's all you, Lord. You're giving me the strength. You're giving me the power. You're providing for me. You're, you're doing whatever it is. Is there any place that, in our lives that we're not giving glory to the Lord in? God gives us the same opportunity He gave them at that time to see things for what they are, what they really are, and turn from that and humbly and obediently follow follow Jesus and glorify Him with our lives. And that's what I pray as, as we go through these and we see how it is that they had challenged His authority. He gave Him a couple parables, continued going through, and He's giving us the same opportunity this morning. Just see things for what they are.
come to a place of repenting. Pray that we would be genuine in heart in seeking him and desiring to bless him and glorify him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, I pray humble. I pray, Lord, that as perhaps you have revealed certain things in our own lives, that we're not submitting to you, we're not giving you the glory for, we're maybe even questioning your authority in, I pray, Lord, that we would stop right there, right now. We would confess that to you. We would ask for your forgiveness. And instead, Lord, that we would turn to you and the things that come from your word, Lord, we would obediently follow that we would bring you glory. I know it's to our own blessing. It's for our own good. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that very work in our lives as individuals, Lord, and as a church, Father, as a fellowship. Will this all be a blessing to you? And may this word resonate in our hearts as we leave here this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would be desiring of singing your praises and your praises alone. That we would submit to you and sit at your feet and Lord, judge things according to your word and not popular opinion. We thank you, Father, for loving us the way you do. In Jesus' name we pray.